Welcome to the Tactical Tool Belt Podcast. On this show, we focus on how the real estate industry, the world's single largest emitter of greenhouse gases, can leverage climate tech to become part of the sustainability solution. I'm your host, Tyson West. I'm a partner on the climate tech team at Fifth Wall, the largest and most active venture investor in technology for the global real estate industry. In this podcast, we'll be joined by people on the front lines, the people inventing, investing in, and deploying the climate tech we'll need to make our homes, offices, and communities more efficient, more sustainable, and ever closer to zero carbon. Today, I'm joined by John Tuff and Katie McLean, who are partners at Energize Ventures, which is a VC that focuses on early and growth stage digital technology for energy and heavy industrial markets with a focus on the transformation to sustainable energy. In this episode, we talk about many things, including the challenges that asset owners have actually putting sustainability programs into practice, the role of venture investors like us in helping our corporate partners understand and implement new solutions, and about how regulation and policy is shaping the adoption of climate tech across the economy. I hope you enjoy the show. So um, before we dive into Energize and climate tech, which is definitely something that's been all over the news lately, um, I know both of you have actually been working in this before it was cool, like before the current um, before everybody started talking about it very recently. So I just wanted to maybe uh, dive into the career paths of how you both um, both got here, because I think from what I know of your backgrounds, like I said, you've been here for a while. So, um, Katie, why don't you start? And uh, how, how did you get here? Or wh- when did you first sort of take an interest in energy and, and climate and infrastructure and those sorts of things? Sure. Um, a, a short, about 20 years ago, I kind of got interested in the environment And I knew I wanted to go back to graduate school, and I wasn't quite sure how to do that because at the time there were not a ton of programs for that. So I actually went back and I got my uh, master's in public policy, and I did that with an environmental concentration here in Chicago at the University of Chicago. And I went from there to work for the state of Illinois. And after that, I worked for the Clinton Foundation. I worked on their um, C40 Climate Cities program, so that was working directly with cities around the world to help them reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. And I was the Chicago person working on that. Um, And then after I did that for a couple of years, I thought I wanted to go to the private sectors to kind of round out my government nonprofit and then get some private sector experience. So that's when I joined Invenergy. And Invenergy is a large renewable energy developer here in Chicago. And so I ran their um, public policy communications brand and community community engagement work for them for about five years. Um, And that's how I found my way over here to Energize and working in BC. Got it. That makes sense. And and so, I mean, we're working backwards in a lot with the end in, in, in energy. Did I did I pronounce the Invenergy? Mm-hmm. But that's probably how you and John got to know each other and where Energize comes from. But I guess, John, same question. Um, when did this first become an area of interest and how did you get how did you get here? Sure. Yeah, I, I began my career in finance at UBS. Um, this was back when bioethanol was all the rage. So this was like when clean tech and climate tech 1.0 was cool. Um, I worked in, in a bank for a while, um, didn't love that experience, despite learning a lot. Um, went to business school at uh, Chicago as well, um, and then um, got a job at, at Kleiner Perkins in their Green Growth Fund back in 2010, 2011. Um, when, again, we were just kind of at the peak of climate tech interest, um, a lot of Silicon Valley had learned the hard way that investing in hardware um, doesn't deliver venture returns necessarily. Um, so, so started investing more in the digital side of the equation, uh, moved to help run a startup that I, that I invested in called choose energy. Um, 
was there for about four and a half years, sold it in 2016, moved back to Chicago um, and reunited with Michael Polsky, who's the, the founder and, and CEO of Metergy, uh, who's also a shareholder in the company that I was, I was helping run. Um, and then, you know, became a partner here and, and, and eventually managing partner, um, you know, running investments and, you know, LP communications, which is an important part of, you know, accumulating capital to drive this transformation. So it's interesting. And, and I definitely get this question a lot. And I think it's talked about in our industry a lot. But the so the Kleiner Green Fund, um, which was sort of an epoch that's famous for maybe underperforming, um, and then the transition now to Energize, how, how internally did you, like, what was your thought process around why things are different this time? So why, why was now the right time for, for Energize and the mission Energize has um, to get, what, what's different this time? Yeah. And you kind of touched on it, but. Sure. Um, and, and while I will, um, I was not a huge part of that team, just to clarify, I would like to say that there actually probably had returns that would surprise most folks to the positive. Um, but the sector as a whole did do poorly um, uh, investing in this hard industry. And I think the main reason that we've discovered is that um, back then, the venture community was investing in material science and expecting venture returns. They're investing in hardware and pretty much declining the cost curve of the actual infrastructure. Well, what is different now is that, you know, Every year since 2010, the cost to install solar has dropped 10%. The cost to install wind has dropped 10 plus percent. Um, batteries are dropping 10%. And so now that you have this incredible infrastructure layer finally installed and cheap enough, um, what's different now is you can actually invest in software that is helping enable in the, this transition, this energy transition, and then also um, you know, capture the value of this transition. And you just couldn't do that a decade ago. Um, you know, there, there were there was no business with 50 million of software ARR in 2010 that served the energy transition, that served climate tech. Um, there's dozens of those now. Yeah. And it also reminds me a lot of um, drawing a parallel with when Fifth Wall was founded, sort of, we, you know, we focused on prop tech technology for real estate. And at the time, even even five years ago, it felt like the same sort of thing. Like, what, what are you talking about? So, venture investable real estate technology what, what how is how is the digital world um colliding with real estate in a way that makes venture sense but um so so maybe tell the audience a little bit about energize um you're a bit of a unique firm and actually in, in a way we were we were talking about earlier we share a lot of dna with with fifth wall um with how how we're sort of constructed and what we do so um maybe explain what energize is and how you're constructing what the, the mission is sure so you know, at Energize, you know, we focus on making investments at the intersection of the energy transition and the broader transition to sustainable industry. Um, for us, that means making software investments primarily um, into post-technology risk companies, you know, early commercialization that are accelerating, you know, the broader advance of renewables. Um, IOT, um, all of these broader uh, trends that, you know, a analog to digital transition um, are enabling. And, and we believe fundamentally that, uh, as I said earlier, you needed the infrastructure to be ready to allow the software layer um, to grow to the extent it is today. And if I can add in there real quick, one of our unique um, 
one of the things that makes us unique is our LP base. Mm -hmm. And so we're a financial first and we are financial first investors, but about half of our LPs are corporate investors. And so they come to us for that corporate strategic insight. And we work closely with them um, to figure out where are their budgets growing? What problems are they trying to solve? They help us with our, our deep dives, which are these very thorough research projects that we do. We work with them in our diligence of companies. And then on the back end, they're often customers for our portfolio. So it's this unique LP base that kind of helps give us, give us an edge of what the customers are really thinking and worried about and what problems are trying to solve. And for the sake of the audience, what, what sector are your LPs um, focused on? If you can mention them by name, that would be great. Or otherwise, you can be sort of just what, what, what area of, of the economy is that mostly focused on? Yeah, it's um, we, we can talk about most of them. So it's it's firms that are um, in the yeah, I call it broadly the critical infrastructure sphere. So we have energy firms like Wisconsin Electric, which is you know top ten utility here in the U.S. We have Invenergy, which is a large renewable energy developer. Um, Caterpillar, the large uh, manufacturer. Um, Schneider Electric, energy management for buildings, uh, which would be overlap with Fifth Wall, of course. Um, and then a few others, but all in that realm of you know, traditionally analog industries that are late to the digital adoption cycle and are finally embracing it. That makes sense. And so at those, one of the things that we've learned about, so um, Fifth Wall Works, it's roughly the same same approach to the world. Well, of course, we focus on large owners and operators um, of real estate. And one of the things we've seen that um, starting about two, three years ago, these firms started to hire um, heads of sustainability. So call them chief sustainability officers who were then... Um, but then sort of saddled with um, saddled with the goal of creating, uh, let's just say, a, a roughly Paris, something something that's roughly Paris aligned 10 year sustainability plan. Sure. Um, and it's turned out that's that's who we tend to work most with. Right. That's who's most hungry for the, the investments we're making um, and the technology companies that we're finding that help them with that plan. Is that the same sort of dynamic you're seeing on your side, just on the corporate structure side? Who's who's hungry for your investments? Yeah, I'd say we're seeing a similar um, a similar angle from our LP. So, but they're they're kind of you sounds like maybe yours are more all kind of corporate real estate holders versus ours are more diverse a little bit. So the utilities are looking um, for us to help them find new technologies to help further scale out renewables, for example, or maybe it's something on the O and M side. Invenergy, um, and they're they're one of our more active LPs that really test out a lot of new technologies as they're trying to build out their renewable energy portfolio. The scale at which they're trying to build out for the next five years is just unheard of. And so they need new technologies to do what they've been doing for the past five and 10 years. They can't do it with their existing tools. Um, Schneider has this huge energy transition focus. So they're trying to figure out what are these new technologies that can help them. So they're all looking for that technology layer, but for different use cases and for different purposes, but it all kind of falls under that umbrella of the energy transition. It, I would bet, you know, you said like uh, the sustainability individual, they, they come in with a incredibly hard task, which is how do you decarbonize a supply chain? How do you decarbonize um, and improve climate efficiency for, you know, big, big older assets? Um, they're looking for help, right? They're looking to hear from their peers. And I think what's made our fund, um, you know, be successful and to the extent of finding good companies and then connecting them just like with Fifth Wall is, um, there is a peer network here where everybody wants to learn from each other. And I think that's also relatively new. Mm -hmm. The sharp shoulders, the sharp elbows of the past seem to be a little softer 
when it comes to sustainability? Yeah, no, I think so. Um, we're definitely seeing that. Um, and it's one of, it's interesting when, when you talk to, if you go to the conferences, um, it, it's the same folks, everybody knows each other. It's a, it's a small kind of really interesting, um, uh, 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 community that's grown out of it. So can you, are there any specific examples that come to mind of investments you've made, um, where you've been able to really sort of like turn around and help your, help your LPs solve a, a challenge they had around the energy transition that you could just like an example, maybe? Sure. Yeah. I think there's probably, there's probably one or two, um, uh, with that stand up quickly. Uh, first would be drone deploy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's been, you know, active, uh, Silicon Valley network around drones and, um, and, you know, which, what can you do with them to better automate process around energy assets or construction or agriculture? And what we've found when we did our, our deep dive was that, um, the drone, uh, sorry, the, the energy firm specifically, as Katie mentioned earlier, are trying to figure out how do you go from building a, a solar farm that is 80 acres to 8,000 acres. And, and that's like, that's the delta that's happened in the last five years. And so you can't walk around and measure the ground anymore with a ruler. Um, you know how drones flying over land and um, you know, kind of optimizing the, the entire construction based on new tools that, that are being built into this aerial software. And that's the company we found. They had almost no energy exposure when we invested. We connected them with our, with our network and our LPs, and they are, most of them became customers. Um, and it kind of helps the company and it helps the, the LP base. And it's that kind of insourcing of technology, which a lot of these LPs are looking for. Yeah, no, I think we say we see a lot of the same things. Um, Katie, I know one of the things in your um, biography that we just talked about, you mentioned um, working, um, I think it was with the Clinton Foundation around building retrofits and things mm-hmm. like that. Yep. Um, so can you maybe talk about if, you know, we've we've zoomed forward a little bit since then, but when you were saddled with that task of actually like having to retrofit hard assets to bring them, and I, I don't know if it was against sort of internal goals or maybe local code that you were going against, but, and I'll kind of jump to the punchline. What were the missing pieces back then that you wish you had that are maybe don't even exist today? So, you know, we're talking about climate tech. You were on the front lines actually um, trying to upgrade buildings. Um, Maybe just what you learned and what are some of the missing pieces? What's on your wish list of, if there are entrepreneurs listening to this podcast right now, uh, what, what sorts of companies do you wish existed in this space? No, it's a great question. And so, so, so back in the day, um, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we were in these buildings in Chicago in the basement meeting with the building engineers. And at the time, a lot of the work we were doing was education. And the way that the model worked was back to your point about how do you implement a climate action plan? The city of Chicago had just thrown out their first climate action plan and the Clinton Foundation was sort of loaning out resources to help cities figure out how do you meet these things? You know, here you are in 2010 and you're talking about goals in 2050. What do you do today? And so our philosophy was just go get started, right? (laughs) Go go talk to folks, go figure out what you can do today. And similarly today, um, a lot of the emissions came from buildings. So that was where we focused in Chicago. And what we did was we actually partnered with folks like a Schneider or a Johnson Controls or a Honeywell who had these energy efficiency programs is kind of a heavy on the ESCO model. Um, and, And back then, a lot of the focus was around financing. How can you finance this for folks? How can you set this up so the building owners can implement these changes with a very um, fast ROI, no money up front. What's that low-hanging fruit to kind of get them over the hump? And um, sadly, I feel like a lot of that is still happening today. I feel like we haven't quite figured that piece out. 
And and one of the things that energized, we look at a lot of these companies, as I'm sure you guys do, and I will kick this over to you <laughs> after I finish to hear what you guys are seeing. Um, it's such a disparate sector and it's so hard to go kind of building owner by building owner and everyone is unique and everyone has their own challenges and nobody's really doing it for the savings reason alone. You kind of have to have some other value add built in there for the building managers to really get them to move the needle. But um, we're, we're definitely having solved this one. We're trying to figure it out. I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, well, I'll riff on something you said, which is need another carrot in a way, right? And for us, that's what's really changed is the regulatory carrot has kind of, or stick, I guess, same, same effect, yeah. um, has come in recently. And so you mentioned the something about the city of Chicago back then. There was presumably some local regulation, but um, so I'm not sure if our audience knows, but we, we're seeing, um, I think, city by city, uh, a lot stronger regulation over the last year to two years, sort of led by New York and, and other places like that. But I also know it's your background a little bit in policy. Do you, what, how, how different is it from 15 years ago, when you, 10, 15 years ago when you were working on it, to the regulatory environment today? Um, do you see big differences? Like, are, have regulators finally put in place enough of an incentive that that creates the, 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 the cost benefit to take action now? Or, or is there still a bit of a gap between, let's say, you know, build, up, build up your savings, the operational savings from efficiency, then you put on top of it the savings from not having to pay fines. Like, are we there? Are we are we in the realm of where things are going to happen? I don't think not quite yet. And honestly, I think the main issue is, like you said, it's city by city. And so what you really need is to have some sort of rules of the road across the country so that folks know how to play by the rules, what are the rules, and that's when you can get the scale when it's so nuanced city by city that's really hard for companies to figure out how to um, how to meet those meet those new regulations. And I'll, I'll equate kind of the building efficiency code one to the RPS, which on the energy side, the renewable portfolio standard moved the needle in a huge way for the um, for the renewable energy sector without that. And it didn't tell states how to do things. It didn't tell utilities how to meet the goals. It just said, here's your goal. You're the company. You go figure out your best way to go and meet that. And I think that's had a lot of success. And so for me, as I can look back over the past 15 years, it's kind of having that initial regulation that kicks people <laughs> off the starting line and gives them the reason to continue to solve the problem, but to let them figure it out in their own way. Yeah. Yeah. We're, um, yeah, we're, we're seeing the same thing. It's really sort of city by city and asset by asset where yeah. some of that pressure is really coming down on, on the sorts of folks we work with. Um, do you, do you have a perspective on what, what's likely to have it happen at the federal level now? Any, any insight, any guesses you want to take? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's a lot to work with here at the Katie, federal level. <laughs> Katie has more knowledge in this space than maybe any else in the energy field. So I'll give her the floor. Well, so I'll, I'll for, let me frame the question slightly then. So imagine you run the sustainability program at, you know, uh, a, a big office owner. So you own several office buildings and you're trying to do, do maybe, you know, half a dozen cities and you're trying to figure out like where should where should my focus be? Where should my goals be? Where where's the puck going? Right, like where where is regulation going to be? How maybe help me help help build that crystal ball? Yeah, it's 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 so that's a little bit more of a challenge. So I think that it's TBD, right? What is exciting about where we sit today is that there's so much activity that the needle will certainly be moved. So you had by the Biden administration today um, unveiled their 50% reduction in greenhouse gas emission goals by 2030. Um, that's amazing. That's really exciting. How do we get there? Who knows? You know, there's a lot to be done there. You've got the over um, two trillion infrastructure bill. That's going to be crazy exciting and move the needle a lot. How? What are the specifics? 
we don't quite know yet. And so I think that there's a lot to be done there. But what is exciting for me about the administration is even different from when the Obama administration tried to do this. The private sector, the companies are really leading the way outside of what's happening in D.C. They've come a long way over the past four years. And so you're seeing the private sector is almost now pulling the um, the public side along with it, which is great. So I think that they'll see a much more receptive audience for whatever the regulations take shape. But you'll see it. You'll see it on EVs. You'll see it around electrification. You'll see it on renewables. They're talking about extending the, um, the PTC and the ITC from renewables that will have huge wide sweeping impacts. So there's a lot to do there. And there's a ton of money going into energy efficiency for buildings. What that's going to look like for the building over the next four years, it's going to be a big fight to duke it out. But some of these are going to move forward in some way, shape or form for sure. I would, I would add one one item there, which is everybody does like to talk about Biden or um, Obama tried this you know, a decade ago. Like, that was a decade ago. And so if there was a chief sustainability officer at a prop tech firm or at a property owner, um, even if they wanted to try a technology somewhere in the organization, there had to be an enterprising general manager. And mm -hmm. that general manager a decade ago would have looked at this as a liability and said, no, not in my building, not in my, my assets. Today, you know, <laughs> there, there is much more awareness from the consumer of, or, you know, the, the person who's actually the tenant in the building or the building owner to want to try these. And I think that's one of the biggest benefits um, on the private side is the sustainability officer probably has a few friends in the organization willing to try these out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing sustainability. I mean, there's another, there's a whole nother approach here, which just as a branding and a product differentiator and in real estate, that's something for tenants, right? That's, that's a, that's where that branding thing comes in. Do you see that in your uh, industry anywhere? I'm trying to imagine where that might, interface with your LPs, but are, are, are customers making choices just based on brand-like considerations like that? Well, a you know a company that we've invested in together with Fifth Wall is Aurora Solar, um, which you know designs rooftop solar systems. Uh, they have you know Fortune 500 customers, and they have small installers. Um, if you were to tell, ask me the crystal ball for Aurora, Aurora, it would be that um, you know. Rooftop solar is going to grow from 500,000 rooftops a year in the U.S. to 2 million by the end of this term for, for Biden. Um, and people aren't doing that just for money, like we were saying. Utilities are adopting it. Building owners are adopting it. It is now an asset to a property. Um, it's more attractive in terms of the long-term footprint, uh, cost footprint, and greenhouse gas footprint. And it's one of the few areas, actually, that energy and sustainability can be made tangible. You don't see a lot of these savings, um, but when you can see an EV, you, you can see it. Um, rooftop solar, you can see it. And I just think that's going to be a huge growth area in the next you know, four or five years for commercial real estate, for residential real estate. Um, we'll be making a lot of investments, hopefully, with, with Fifth Wall uh, in that area. Yeah, it's something, you know, you're, I think, who do you have? You have Volta. Um, you have a bunch in, in the EV and the charging infrastructure um, uh, Area. And it's something that, you know, we'll talk to some of our LPs sometimes. And you, you can imagine if you're a large building owner, let's say with warehouses, um, and you have you have a massive amount of roof space just in terms of square footage to put solar on. And maybe your customers are starting to pull up now with vehicles that need to be um, vehicles that need to be charged. So right. all of a sudden you're a utility company like you have a sub business that's a power company kind of hidden inside of your um, your 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 building company. And so just the opportunity for, um, you know, 
two dozen little interesting pieces of technology and startups and solutions to helping helping that business stack run. Um, I don't know how closely are you looking at that whole thing? Are you, do you see a lot of interesting um, interesting deals coming down for that vision of one yeah. of the places this is going? Yeah, I bet you this overlaps with with the real estate sector, which is for so long like every single climate tech startup was all about using less, use less energy, you know, be more sustainable, use less water. Um, what's great about this like electrification movement with buildings, with everybody is you can switch the conversation back to use more. Like well, that, that's Tesla's trick, right? Tesla's just a better product. It's yeah. not, it's not turning down the air conditioner. It's making a better air conditioner. Right. Um, and then it's, you know, as long as you assume that the electric grid will be decarbonized, which we're yep. well on our way, then yep. it's all better. But like, yeah, like how, how often can a, a warehouse manager who's about to have, you know, if, if they're, if they're hosting FedEx and all of a sudden hundred FedEx trucks need to be electrified every day, um, there's just like a use more narrative that they can then become an energy service provider for, for the first time. And, and there's margin to be made. Um, so it's, it's a nice flip. And that's why I think this, this trend will accelerate is when, when um, asset heavy operators can find a way to be incentivized for the use of more versus the use of less, um, you know, the, the returns should increase. Yeah. So one of the perspectives that we sometimes get from our LPs is the grid is going sustainable. So can I just sit and wait? In other words, it's sort of someone else's problem, right? Uh, so you're, how, how, how does your part of the world look at, like, and by your part, I might be generalizing, but how does, how does the energy business, I, I don't know, how, how, do they see, how do you look at the next 10 years? Is it the customers and the providers both working or is it, is it in the end mostly the providers that we just have to, the energy, your, your vision, right? The energy transition, like. It's both, actually. And so we see a lot of con companies leading the way on purchasing renewable energy. And I think that it goes back to that brand piece for you. So tons of companies have gotten huge brand lifts, um, Google, Amazon, Facebook, with, and they'll buy whole um, solar farms. And they'll say, this is powering my, um, you know, my grid over here with all of the energy that we're going to use. And so a lot of corporates are jumping out front to really take a leadership role on that. And then you're also seeing utilities on the provider side, make these huge commitments. And what we're seeing on the utility side is that they're retiring coal faster than they thought they would, and they're deploying renewables faster than they thought they would. So for your question with kind of your LPs, it's more about do you want to get that brand lift with being out front with purchasing renewables, or do you want to sit back and wait for the grid to kind of green itself? Have you seen any? So then the next challenge that introduces to somebody, how do I, what are some of the best approaches to actually actualizing that that you've seen? I, I want to purchase renewables. I want to, I, I got to manage a rec portfolio. Like what, I, I'm just interested. Have you seen interesting companies or solutions that sure like, it's, it's my job to do this. How do I do it? Yeah, we, there are a number and there's a few marketplaces, um, both for community solar, you know, Arcadia, uh, these are not portfolio companies of ours, but Arcadia power is a great one. Um, level 10 is a community rec marketplace. Um, if you want to buy, um, portions of offtake at large utility scale, um, I would say uh, I would take this a slightly different way, which is if a building owner wants to do more and actually make it tangible again to show their customers that there's like something on site. Obviously, there's EV charging. Um, I, th there's a few other uh, quick ROI items um, that are available, and I would classify those as um, uh, 
items like you know rooftop solar, EV charging, um, like lighting in the building. I know this is like all really basic stuff, but like it's just factual. And then, um, and depending on the state, on-site batteries, I believe, will be the biggest, the fastest growth area in the next four years. So um, we don't talk about power quality because you've never had your lights flicker in your office, um, but that will be a discussion in the future. And if your power is traveling 10 feet from the, the battery downstairs or you know, 500 miles from the wind farm in, in Kansas, people are actually going to know pretty soon. It'll be made more tangible. And I think you, the owners will, will have that option. Do you think, is, is lithium ion just obvious runaway winner there? Or are there other contenders, do you think? Yes. Lithium ion, uh, it's not the best. Like You see the teardowns of Tesla. It's essentially, and Tesla people are going to kill me for this. It's essentially just a lot of AA batteries in the bottom of a car. <laughs> in, in, in another in another lifetime, I was actually a, a battery designer uh, for okay. a, a lithium-ion battery designer for eighteen six fifty cells, which are roughly AA yep. size batteries. So yeah, right. And so like, yep. listen, there's designs and there's there's the heating and cooling. I get that, but like just law of large numbers, and this is what people have doubled down on. And so it's it's going to be hard for other technologies to catch up. Is my guess. Got it. That makes sense. And is there anything else you guys want to talk about? I'd love to hear from your LPs and kind of the property managers. How are they thinking about this kind of further distribution of the their power sources, their own little microgrids, the resiliency, how they're doubling down on that? You keep seeing in California, you got the wildfires. Texas had their big crisis earlier this year. What are your folks thinking to protect to do to protect themselves? So it's a cliche that real estate is a local business. Um, <laughs> it's like a tautology, but I mean, it is right. And you nailed some of those there. Um, Climate risks in places like California are wildfire and drought, as an example. Um, maybe you could consider just power quality as well. Um, whereas if you go to Florida, obviously it's more, uh, uh, let's say, flood risk. So um, it's super, super idiosyncratic um, by geography. And then you overlay that on top of the regulatory picture, which we talked a little bit about at the beginning, which, again, is totally, <laughs> totally dependent on um, the city. Um, then, of course, there's different asset classes. So, for example, if you own and operate office buildings, um, so your, your constituents, you have customers that would have maybe some sustainability requirements, but then you have local city regulators and maybe state, county, and federal regulators. But then, on the other hand, you might be a single family home builder, um, which actually right now has the least set of pressures on it around sustainability. No one's going to tax single family homes. And to a large extent, people when they're buying a house actually probably today aren't actually willing to shell out a lot of extra money for it. So the problem with answering that question is just the diverse, like it, it is, it's, it's, it's a really, really complicated landscape and every way you slice it has its own sort of set of um, requirements and solutions. But if I had to paint with broad strokes, most large corporates, um, especially like the publicly traded ones, um, are shooting for like roughly pair, everyone's shooting roughly Paris aligned goals with like different asterisks like scope one, scope two, scope three. Right. Uh, is, it, is it like, how do you, what does net zero mean uh, actually in practice? Um, and kind of along there. But, you know, I think uh, the other broad stroke all paint is that everybody realizes that actually if they're being honest, their plans are probably unrealistic. Yeah. <laughs> it, That's like, right. th there's like a weird collective fiction going on that um, 
you know, everybody, it's well-intended and things like Paris have put like a set of framework and goals and like rough timelines out that like, okay, let's all try to get there. But there's just a gap, right? Like there's just like, like, and, and it's not even a cost problem in a lot of ways, although that, it's just like, there's, there's just pieces that can't be done today. And I think that's actually what's exciting about our jobs yeah. is we can look ahead and we can find those those holes, those gaps, those things that don't exist that need to and help get them there. Yeah. Absolutely. On a follow-up, maybe, you know, you guys launched a European fund as well. Yep. Um, is there a geography that's more advanced in this thinking in your mind? Well, so, um, you know, Europe and Asia, and I mean, particular Singapore, right? Like, take Singapore. This, if you... I hate to call it faddish in America, but it sort of is, right? Like we've been talking about this for 20 years, but literally in the last year or two, it's become sort of the, the volume of the conversation is high. But like you take a place like Singapore, they're an island. Um, sustainability has been an existential issue for its whole existence, right? So they've been pretty serious about this for a while. Europe obviously has just from a political and cultural sort of um, standpoint. So what we've seen is that, you know, those regions have been working on this and there's something really interesting, like, especially in the heavy. So you have like the, the whole hydrogen sort of infrastructure going on between like, you know, Mitsubishi hydrogen turbines coming out of Japan and sort of what's going on in the Middle East and places like Singapore kind of sitting in the middle of it. So you have that sort of stuff happening. Um, but the most significant things we're seeing, um, and I hate to be so US centric, like thinking about it when we see it, but the big difference in the last 24 months is, is like the, it's, I'll use, I'll use the term Silicon Valley and I don't just mean Silicon Valley, but the Silicon Valley machine has woken up to this opportunity and is now just like pointing itself at the problem. Yeah. So like, that's actually one of the big changes in the world that we're most excited about is it's just that American entrepreneurial and capital allocation machine is like tackling this problem. So even though it's been, it's been a topic in other parts of the world for like decades, even like the thing that's really changed is the the U.S. giant has kind of like woken up and made it uh, made it a priority. Yeah, the the, the country best at innovation has woken yeah. up. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, and and uh, sort of that also then reacts sort of most ex- once once it's moving, it really moves in a direction. So um, yeah, that's I think that's probably the single you know, standing back as just, uh, I don't know, a citizen of the world. Like that's, that's kind of the most exciting thing in a way that, um, that, that, that sort of the U S capital allocation system, entrepreneurs, regulators, corporates. I mean, everyone, I actually can't think of another thing in recent memory that everyone was just so aligned around, um, with real dollars behind. Um, so Dollars make things happen. So <laughs> that's where we enter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it for me. Anything? Yeah, no, this is great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Fifth Wall's Tactical Tool Belt podcast. For more on Fifth Wall and our efforts in climate tech, visit our website at fifthwall.com.